beholds the great sin and idolatry that was taking place in God's sanctuary. Last week we saw that this vision that Ezekiel was going through took on a courtroom scene. Yahweh sits upon his throne and he is rendering his verdict upon Egypt, or rather, I'm sorry, uh, he's rendering his verdict upon Israel and her idolatry. In this passage, Yahweh's rendering justice against and for those within Jerusalem. So then with this refresh in our minds, I want us to look today at a point that I briefly touched on last week, but I want to develop it, develop it more today. If you would, open your Bibles to Ezekiel, and we will read the whole chapter, chapter but we will pay close attention to verses 4 to 6. Something's going to have to happen with this, I'm sorry. Ezekiel chapter 9, paying particular attention to verses 4 to 6. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came up from the direction of the upper gate, with which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his waist. And when they went in and stood beside, they went in and stood beside the, the bronze altar. Now the glory of the Lord of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And here, is, here it is. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of those men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your ears shall not, uh, I'm sorry, your eyes shall not spare. You shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women. But touch no one on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city. And while they were striking, and I was left alone, I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? And he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And behold, the man clothed in linen, with the writing case at his waist, brought back word, saying, I have done as you commanded me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is inerrant, infallible. And Lord, it teaches us, even in its ancient setting, it teaches us so much of our day and what our future will be. Lord, help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear marvelous truths from your law. We ask this in your son's holy and perfect name. Amen. A few weeks ago, I preached a sermon dealing with biblical theology as it relates to the book of Ezekiel. We noted in that sermon that God purposely repeats similar stories and narratives, like the exodus or the exile. Those who know his word should be constantly recognizing these patterns and these themes. And today's passage is no different. 
What I want us to see today is that Ezekiel alludes to and repeats the story of the Passover. That is why it is entitled Ezekiel's Passover. The story of the Passover sets the stage for the Bible's ultimate story of salvation. And we will see Ezekiel picking up this Passover story and he makes it his own. And both these renditions, both uh, in Exodus and Ezekiel, both these renditions will have profound importance to the last grand act of salvation, our salvation from the judgment to come. We have three points today uh, for today's message. Our first point is the story of salvation. The second point, the sign of salvation. And the third point, the swell of salvation. The story, the sign, and the swell of salvation. These alliterations, I'm getting a little bit too Baptist, are I not? So then first, the story of salvation. First, I want us to look at the story of salvation that Ezekiel is alluding to in chapter 9. In verse 4 of chapter 9, God commands one of his angelic officers, dressed in scribal garb, to go through and mark the people who sigh and moan over the abominations in the city. Verse 4, And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and mark, or a sign as the Greek translated it, uh, sign, mark a sign on the foreheads of men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed in it. Then Yahweh commands his other angelic officers, the ones who had the weapons in hand, in verse 5. And to the others he said in my hearing, pass, pass, a bar in the Hebrew, through the city after him, pass a bar through the city after him, and strike Nakah. Your eyes shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. And begin in my sanctuary. So in verse 5, Yahweh's speech uses language evocative of another event in redemptive history, and we know what that is, the Passover. Everyone, if you would, please turn to your Bibles in Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. And as you're turning there, uh, we, we should all be familiar with this story. The book of Exodus is the story of God saving his people Israel from the bondage, from their bondage to Egypt. God sent his servant Moses to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, in order that Pharaoh would release Israel from their bondage. But Pharaoh persisted in his rebellion. So God sent countless plagues upon the Egyptians, culminating in the final tenth plague which was the death of the firstborn in all of Egypt. A grave and horrendous judgment. In order for Israel to be spared of this great judgment to come, God provides a way for them. And as we see, it will be the blood of the land covering the Israelites' doorways. So in Exodus 12, verse 7, we read these words. Then they shall take some of the blood... And put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they sat. Meaning, meaning the lamb's blood. And they will eat it. Dropping down to verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fasted, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And very important, verse 12. It gives the grounds for why the Israelites were to partake in this feast and partake in this festival. For I will pass abad, 
I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike Nakah, all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Both man and beast and all the gods of Egypt, I will execute my judgments. I am the Lord. And this is key, verse 13. The blood shall be a sign, which is similar to the, uh, Ezekiel's Greek translation. This, this blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So then, brothers, we, we see many parallels through this Exodus passage in our Ezekiel passage, right? Not only are there obvious thematic links, but grammatical as well. That's why I brought up the Hebrew. I, I want us to see that there is a deep grammatical link between these two passages, purposely so. The language of passing through and then striking is repeated by Ezekiel. And both the blood of the Passover lamb and what Ezekiel's mark on the forehead were both called a sign. So then to not, to not see these obvious thematic and grammatical ties would be foolish on our account. Both Yahweh and Ezekiel are at pains for us to read Ezekiel's passage in light of the Passover. God wants us to read this book in light of the Passover. So then what does this mean for us? What does it mean that God repeats similar themes and connects passages through allusions to other book, biblical books? A few weeks ago, I mentioned how Christians should love their Old Testaments and how the Old Testament stories like the Passover should be read as our stories. These stories are our stories. These stories teach us what our God is like and what he is doing. And I stand by that assessment today. But I want to push further that this particular story of the Passover is the story. It is the story that sheds the most light on our salvation in Christ. For example, the Apostle Paul just throws this out just kind of nonchalantly as if this is majorly known, that th this is just obviously known. He just says, for Christ, our Passover lamb immediately qualifies him in 1 Corinthians 5.17. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. There was no buildup in the argumentation. He just went, boom, here it is. He is Passover. So what does the Passover have to do with our salvation in Christ? Two quick observations. First, what the Passover lamb did in Exodus 12 is a picture of Christ's work on the cross. God promised in Exodus 12 that he would go through the land of Egypt indiscriminately. The people of God in Egypt would be spared, that is, Israel in Egypt would be spared if and only if there was blood on their door. God, in his sovereign will, decreed and revealed that he would be satisfied with the blood of the Lamb. And this was his chosen means to save his people from the judgment to come. In his promise to them, God would look at the blood upon the wall, upon the, on the, upon the door frames. He would look at this blood and he would pass over that home. The blood was a sign of the promise of God that he would accept the sacrifice that he had revealed. What God is saying here is, I have revealed what I deem satisfactory. This is the way of salvation. So then this imagery of God accepting his own sacrifice should naturally make us think 
of the doctrine of propitiation. It's a theological term, yes, and I'm bad at peppering those in. I apologize. But this is a really important one, brothers, and we need to love this one. Propitiation is the idea that God's wrath is averted due to a sacrifice that God deemed satisfactory. Because this is satisfactory, because God has revealed that this is satisfactory, that he delights in the sacrifice rendered, his wrath is thus turned away. Such as it is for the Passover lamb. And and rather, brothers, uh, such as it was for the Passover lamb, so it is with also the Lamb of God. For example, in 1 John 4.10, John speaks of Christ being the revealed and chosen means in which his Father is satisfied. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not only that he loved God, not, only that we, not, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son, and we could read it as this, that he loved us and revealed his chosen means of the Son, to be the propitiation for our sins. That is, this propitiation is the satisfaction for the coming judgment against our sins. So then second observation. Now with all this focus on sacrifice for God's people, it is easy to forget that the Passover takes place in the midst of a judgment event. And I think far too many theologians just go across this, or or biblical scholars go across this. The Passover lamb was revealed to God's people because God's judgment was coming against Israel's captors, the Egyptians. Last week we noted that God's judgment against the idolaters in the land of Jerusalem would be a kind of salvation for the faithful people in the land. And this is true for Israel and Egypt. It is only through the judgment and destruction of God's enemies that Israel would be fully free to worship and serve Yahweh. Let my people go. That's the idea. That they might worship me. Only by God coming to subdue and destroy Pharaoh and his false gods in the ten plagues, the people of Israel are able to fully enjoy their relationship with Yahweh. We we saw that we will... We saw that we will fully enjoy our union with God once our enemies have been judged and sent away from us in the new heavens and new earth as New Testament Christians, those who await that that eschaton, the end of the age. So with these observations, I hope that we can see that the Passover story in Exodus 12 is the paradigm, brothers, after which God reveals his larger story of salvation in Jesus. Not only is the Passover the story that Ezekiel will pattern his message message after here, but the Passover becomes the foundation for how we understand the work of Christ in our salvation. He is our propitiation. Simply put, brothers, our story is just like Israel's. We are saved through propitiation and judgment against our enemies. Christ is the propitiation that satisfies God's wrath against our sins. And Christ is also the God-man who will judge his enemies and rescue his people from the misery of their enemies. Brothers, this is our story. We have Christ. This is our story. This is the Passover story. We have Christ who has been our propitiation. Similar to that of dross 
coming off of metal. Uh, I think Ben's metaphor just stuck with me so poignantly. Is that we are like dross, but the dross is the enemy. And it's by only constantly burning it and removing it uh, through judgment that we become a purified people. So then, this is our story, brothers. We are saved not only through propitiation, but also against the judgment of our enemies. I exhort us all to cherish this fact. And I also want us to delve into the contours and details that are prepared in the Old Testament given to us, as we noted a few weeks ago. Not only will we become better Bible readers, brothers, but we will better understand Christ's work for us in light of the story he wants us to hear. Uh, you know, it's the new year, right? We get into that time in which we're making our, um, our, our, our plans, our reading Bible plans, right? I do the um, shame personally. I found that very helpful. I love how we go through the, the Psalms and the New Testament twice, and, and I'm able to take my time in the historical books. And the reason I like that, Mary doesn't like it as much. And I guess it's just my nerd coming out possibly, or maybe she just really hates hearing about all the dead kings. But it's grand for me, right? And it's because, not, not to her, her um, I'm sorry, sweetheart, but it, it's to our benefit that we hear the same stories over and over again. That's something that she constantly brings up. How We've read this before. No, we haven't. We just haven't read it this time in this way with these characters. It's the same old story. And then I tell her, God recorded this same old story again and again and again for us to learn. Guys, the Old Testament is our book. It's our book. Let's read it. So for those who have not been participating in some kind of read the book throughout the year, I highly encourage you and exhort you to do so. Because God has given us a word. He has given us a word in this time and age where there is no excuse not to know these stories inside and out. May God be with us in that endeavor. Amen? Amen. So then, moving on, brothers. I want us to transition back to Ezekiel 9. So if you would, please go back to Ezekiel 9. And we'll look at our second main point, the sign of salvation. Now that we have God's story of propitiation and judgment of enemies refreshed in our minds we are better able to shed some light on what is happening in verses 4 to 6 of chapter 9. And let me just read that text one more time. Uh, Ezekiel 9, verse 4. And the Lord said to him, meaning the linen, uh, the man clothed in linen, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. We'll just leave that for now. In these verses, we read that God's angelic scribe wrote a mark upon the heads of the faithful who despised the idolatry in Jerusalem. In comparison to the Passover story, this mark seems to act in a similar capacity to the blood of the Lamb, right? This mark was a sign in which the angelic executioners would not strike down those who bear it. Those who bore this sign were the recipients of God's grace and salvation, with this said, there, there are some notable differences and developments uh, 
in contrast to the Passover story that we saw in Ezekiel 12. I'm sorry, Exodus 12. I'm going to keep doing that. First, notice that there is no sacrifices in the case of the Passover story here in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, there is not a sacrifice that served as the basis for God's passing over his faithful people. There was no revealed means that this is my chosen sacrifice that I have revealed that will be the propitiation. There's none of that. In Exodus 12, the sign of the blood meant something to Yahweh because Yahweh revealed what it signified. His promise, what it signified was his promise to spare them from the coming judgment of his grace. But in Ezekiel, we have no revealed basis for why this sign effectuates salvation. This might seem like a tedious point, but in the Bible, signs signify something. They're important. The blood pointed to God's promise of salvation from judgment. The rainbow in Noah pointed to God's promise of a fixed natural order. Circumcision pointed to God's covenant with Israel. But what does this mark point to? What does it signify? What was God signifying by this mark? What is, what is he trying to teach? And I believe, brothers, that the answer is found in the imagery of the mark itself. In the Hebrew, the word for mark in your English Bibles is tau, T-A-W. And this is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Though God does not explicitly tell us what this tau means in the passage, that this interesting mark of the tau would have been known, uh, known by the, or the audience. During the time of Ezekiel by his writing, uh, the tau, that, that last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, look uh, looked and resembled an X or a lowercase t. For those who know Hebrew, this, uh, what we know as Hebrew is the Aramaic script. This is a, a, a more classical Hebrew, so it's not quite the same script. So the original tau that they would have had would have more looked like a, a, an X, a cross, or a lowercase t. This letter, this T, this tau, was often used as shorthand for one's signatures to mark or identify one's possessions. This mark would be similar to how uh, illiterate immigrants came into the new world. They would sign their documents with an X, right, as a stand-in for their actual signature so that they could receive their possessions. In Ezekiel, the, the, the signature or mark acted as a sign of God's possession upon the faithful. Simply put, this mark, this tau, illustrated God's unique possession of the faithful in Jerusalem. Let me say that again. The mark illustrated God's unique possession of the faithful in Jerusalem. By God placing this particular mark on their forehead, God was saying, this one is mine. With this fleshed out, brothers, I, I believe this would, will provide some counterbalance to what we saw last week. We noted last week and today that God rewards his faithful and his righteous servants in both the old and new covenants by destroying their enemies. Uh, remember, uh, justice is rewarding, as we said. But something that I want to ask today is this. Why are these people in Jerusalem found faithful? Why are these people who moan and weep over the state of idolatry in Jerusalem behaving in such a way? Compared to the gross idolatry that we saw in chapter 8, why aren't these men following like their fellow citizens? 
Why don't they weep and moan over Tammuz or give themselves to other false gods? Why haven't these men been corrupted in their sin just like their fellow men? Why? We could ask this from another angle. Why was God going to save these particular individuals? Was it because they were merely faithful? Was God's salvation only for those who met a certain standard of holiness or righteousness or piety or whatever else it may be? Were they to belong to God because they had showed themselves worthy? Or perhaps, brothers, I think this is more likely the case. Were they faithful? Were they faithful because they already belonged to God? Brothers, God's mark of possession upon these faithful citizens was a sign that God, that, that, that signified what God had already done in their midst. It was just making it visible. The reason that these men despise sin and idolatry is because they had already belonged to their God, Yahweh. In Deuteronomy 7, we read God giving an explanation for why Israel was to despise idolatry, and he bases it in his character and who he is and what he has done for these people. Deuteronomy 7, 6, For you, Israel, are a holy people. You are a people who belong to me. You are my possession, Israel, to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people in the, uh, that the Lord set his love on you and shows you, for you were fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you. It was not something that they were. It was something that our God did and willed. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath is that he wills it, that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out of the, by, by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So then, brothers, whether it's Israel in the wilderness or Israel on the brink of exile, God roots his command against idolatry in his sovereign electing love of Israel. Also, it's not that Israel was any more faithful or righteous than any of the other nations would have been. We see throughout Israel's history, even after their miraculous salvation from Egypt in Exodus 15, they begin to immediately grumble and complain against God in Exodus 16. As God's covenant, as covenant Lord, God commanded Israel to obedience and God would winnow his people for their disobedience. But nevertheless, it is in his sovereign pleasure, it is in his mere pleasure, brothers. He has always preserved a remnant of faithful Israelites. And again, these Israelites were faithful because they first and foremost belonged to Yahweh. Is first and foremost because Yahweh loved them. Yes, God does reward the righteous and the faithful. And he does punish evil and the wicked. But we must always remember the reason for why he does not utterly wipe out his people. And why he has anything to do with sinful men such as Israel or us in the first place. 
the reason for his ways, the reason that he keeps coming back, the reason that he has chosen you is because he has simply chosen you. The reason for his ways is his own sovereign pleasure. Brothers, this truth, how beautiful a truth it is. This truth is even further illuminated in the New Testament. Our Lord Christ has, ha- has the same hold upon us, brothers. In contrast to false disciples who do not abide and bear fruit, similar to the idolatrous Israelites. They were not truly connected to Yahweh. They did not truly belong to Yahweh. Jesus teaches his disciples that they belong to him, and he is the reason that they will persevere to the end, like those faithful who receive the mark. Jesus plainly states in John 15, verse 16, these words, You did not choose me, disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, you may give it, that he may give it to you. By Jesus' mere pleasure to vitally unite himself to his own people. He, we are preserved and we persevere to the end, brothers. It is only because of his sovereign choice and appointment that the disciples are called to abide in Christ and to to be faithfully bearing fruit. Brothers, as it was with them, so it is with us. Again, same story, but a better story. Because we have Jesus. Brothers, we only abide and persevere to the end. We only make it to the finish line finish line, if, and let me underscore this, if and only if God and his sovereign pleasure has seen fit to do so. Brothers, I know that this is the doctrine of election and this is something that we're so used to. We theorize about, we play with it, we, we look at it. But the mere fact that we are here, brothers, And the mere fact that we have a hope, the mere fact that we are what we are in Christ Jesus is because God wills it. Your God, brothers and sisters, I can say this. If you are united to Christ in true vitality, united to him, bearing fruit, that is the product of God's first work of willing you before the foundations of this earth that you would bear fruit for him to the praise and honor and glory of his name. You, brothers and sisters, are God's first fruits. May we act like it. May we glorify our God and may he be glorified in all things because that is what he wills for us. And brothers, I'll say this. For those who are weary. I remember uh, being a young, young man coming to accept the truths of Calvinism, as we so call it. And I remember, and I actually had a conversation here, but I, I was so encouraged by it whenever it happened. 
is that uh, I had a brother here, he, he, he said something along the lines of, you know, I don't, I don't doubt that God exists. I don't have the, those intellectual doubts. And I'm right there with them. I, I just don't have those anymore. But the thing that I doubt most is whether or not he loves me. And the most precious bomb to that question is this. If God has willed it, he has willed it. And he has given us, in his word, the means to know whether he has willed it. And that is simply our fruit, our vital, abiding union with him. That is not the basis of our salvation. Our fruit is not. It is not our faithfulness. It is not our fidelity. It is not our righteousness. It is not our piety. It is because God said, you are mine, therefore bear fruit. Brothers, make your calling and election sure, but make sure that you don't confuse the basis of your election. It is not your fruit. It is not your faithfulness. It is God's will that you have that perfect propitiation, that substitutionary atonement provided to you in Christ. That is the basis of our assurance. Christ and God's will to have us in Christ, in Christ alone. May that truth be a bomb to your soul as it is mine. Brothers, with this at the forefront of our minds, with the doctrine of God's election in its splendor, it is important as we come to this last grand act of the Bible, is that we, that, that we come to the last grand overarching story of the Bible, this last act in the Bible. In Ezekiel 9, the prophet is dismayed over the destruction that is going to take place in Jerusalem. In verse 8, he cries out to God, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel and the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? In light of judgment, God brings against sin. Ezekiel is rightfully concerned. But as we will see, though his, though his God's purposes seem so dark now, God's eternal purposes are far grander and more beautiful than what Ezekiel's eyes see. For our third point, I want us to see the swell of God's salvation on this last day. This culminating swell of the grand story of the Bible. I want us to see it as the swelling, culminating act of God's redemption in Christ. So for this last point, we should happily note that Revelation 7, if you'll turn there with me, Revelation 7 alludes to our passage in Ezekiel 9. And it makes a similar point about God's salvation as we've seen so far today. God's work of salvation, ultimately, brothers, is a work of preservation, uh, to, uh, preservation uh, to preserve the universal church so that we, she rather, might preserve to the final judgment. In this part of Revelation, in, in chapter 7, John describes what salvation was going to look like in the last days. But now the final day of judgment is here. And Jesus is preparing his people accordingly. In Revelation 7, verse 2 to 3, we read this. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or sea or the trees until 
we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I remember, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. First, just, just a few observations. Notice that in both Ezekiel and in Revelation, that an angel is the one who administers the sign, right? So again, another illusion. Second, God takes Ezekiel's imagery of the sign, but he calls it a seal. The terminology of seal may be stronger for what is presented here in John. Similar to Ezekiel's focus on God's ownership of that towel, right? Is that it's a sign of ownership, a possession of his people. The idea of a seal reinforces the idea that the church is God's peculiar and particular treasured possession. This ownership theme, brothers, that we see in, in Ezekiel 9 is even further highlighted, or that we see here in Revelation 7, is further highlighted by the saints. Their names in this passage are called the servants or the slaves of God. Again, these are people sovereignly preserved by God and are perceived as those facing their final tribulation. Uh, Something's wrong today. I don't know what's wrong, but tribulation, thank you. And that this is the ultimate idea behind this, is that God is preserving his people, his own people, his slaves, his people, his precious possession, and he is preserving them to the end. And he's ensuring that his people go through unscathed from this tribulation. After beholding the multitudes of the 144,000, um, John's, John's vision shifts to the saints and, and their perseverance and the reward that they are going to receive. In verses 13 and 14, an elder interacts with John. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. These are. They're coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Looking at the elect saint, John puts two and two together. The themes of the Passover lamb from Exodus 12 and the themes of God's ownership of his people from Ezekiel 19 come together and ground in this ground-swelling scene, right? Those who are marked by God, those who have received the mark of God's ownership, they are also the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. They are persevering to the end. Again, those who are faithful through the tribulation and trials that God ordains for his church are those marked as God's own. In other words, those who are preserved by God, as indicated by the mark, are those who would go through and persevere in the ordained tribulation in, the victory, in victory and faithfulness. And these saints here also share the descriptor as those washed in the blood of the Lamb. The past tense, the heiress of verse 14, indicates that these saints already are already washed. So with this mixture of illusions, I would suggest that those who bear the mark of God's ownership and those who bear the cleansed robes through the blood of the Lamb are the exact same person. They're the exact same people. Simply put, those who belong to God are all, or those who are united to Christ are those also washed and cleansed by Christ's blood from the penalty and power of sin. I want us to see this connection 
uh, naturally and logically in this text is that God's own treasure possession are exactly the same people whom the propitiation is provided for. Do you see? Do you understand? Ownership, propitiation, coming together, is that propitiation is for those owned by God, given to God, belonging to God. But in this final verse, brothers, we now see the people go before God and His throne. And they will see the very presence of sin removed from their midst at last. Verse 15. Therefore, they, the saints, the owned and propitiated, are before the throne of God and serve Him daily and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them in His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. That is, their king. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In this final passage, we see the magnificent display of God's people before the king who own and purchase them with his own blood. Notice the protection of the king's shelter, that he shelters his people. No longer are God's redeemed people before numerous and mounting enemies on the horizon. Constantly throughout redemptive history, it was onslaught after onslaught in both Old and New Testaments. But here, the enemies are done for good. But most significantly, brothers, our God himself will wipe away every tear. God sheltering his people in his presence is the removal of brokenness and misery that the presence of sin brings. No longer will we shelter in this fallen world waiting for the day of deliverance to come. That is not our hope. We are not to cower, brothers, in the new heavens and new earth. When we come before our God, we will rest secure in God's new world of blessedness, of joy, and of glory. Brothers, this world you see around us now is filled with so much toil and sadness and despair when left to ourselves. Without God, Israel will be judged along with Egypt. The citizens of Israel would be judged along with the idolaters. And with our, our God's work of salvation in Christ, the saints of God would still reside in misery and brokenness. But with our God, we have nothing but hope, brothers. We have nothing but hope. He is making all things new. We have, come, we, we have the hope that He will shelter us as His treasured and blood-brought people. And as we meditate upon this reality, and as we close today, brothers, may God prepare His church to be that place where heaven and earth meet, where the new heavens are, are tasted week in and week out in our meeting and gathering together. Brothers, as we think upon the gospel of Jesus Christ together, and as I, I remember what I am, I am so needed to be reminded of in the new members class, is that we need one another to build us up for the glory of God, yes, but also to remind us in our love for one another 
in our coming together, in our mutual edification, in our strengthening, brothers. We are tasting the new heavens and the new earth. We are tasting when we have that joyful communion. Not the busyness of, of a Lord's Day, not the busyness of, of just preaching schedule or Sunday school classes. But brothers, when we join in true communion, when we feel the shelter of our God in this building, when we're together, Lord, brothers, we taste and see what the new heavens will look like. We get a foretaste of what that will be like. And so, brothers, as we see that day drawing near, let us not neglect meeting together. Why? Why? So that we might all mutually be benefited, that we might be reminded it is coming. Our God is coming. Our Christ is coming to shelter us and to completely remove the brokenness and misery that we see around us in our social media feeds, in the cable news, in our own souls. Brothers, that brokenness will be gone. The remedy now that God has given us as we wait is one another. So brothers, give yourselves to one another. Love one another. Give yourselves in such a way that glorifies God in, in your faithfulness and your fidelity. But most importantly, may the fragrant love that we exemplify to one another, may that build us and may that make us long for the heavens to come. And as we with John say at the end of his writings, as he says, Lord Jesus, come. Because we know what is coming. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day, and Lord, we thank you for what you have shown us in your word. We thank you that you are good to us, that we might know the blessedness and the heavenliness, the joyfulness of the new heavens to come, because you are both our propitiation, and you will remove away our enemies and the sorrow and misery attached to them. Lord, thank you for that perfect work Thank you for being our Passover lamb. And thank you that your work, your story is not over yet. Thank you that we might behold the story coming together before us now. And Lord, may we long for that new heavens, the new earth that we eagerly await. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Guide us, O great Jehovah. Amen. Would you please stand with me and take